Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news in our world lead. The United States trying to ramp up the pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin this afternoon, slapping a new set of sanctions on a new group of Russian elites. The goal was to maximize the impact on Putin and Russia and minimize the harm on us and our allies and friends around the world. Meanwhile, in Putin's war on Ukraine, apocalyptic scenes on the outskirts of the capital city of Kyiv, where Ukrainian officials claim Russians bombed civilian targets in the town of Borodyanka for two days. This is what remains of a residential apartment building there. Residential. Ukraine's emergency services say at least 33 dead bodies were pulled from the rubble across the city. And in the northern Ukrainian town of Chernigiv, The city's mayor says two civilians were among the nine Ukrainians killed in these airstrikes when Russian forces hit blocks of residential homes. Again, residential homes. The city, which is about two hours outside of Kyiv, has suffered through several days of shelling by the Russian military. To be very clear, the Russians, Putin, they're targeting the civilian population of Ukraine. These are not errant bombs. These are not mistakes because of strikes on military targets nearby. These are Russian forces trying and succeeding in killing Ukrainian kids and moms and dads and grandparents. Today, President Putin claimed the war on Ukraine is going according to plan and is on schedule. Though U.S. intelligence indicates Russia did not predict the amount of resistance that its troops are now facing from Ukraine. That resistance includes these efforts you see from the Ukrainian military. The country's Ministry of Defense shared this video with journalists. It's a video of Ukrainian missiles. The ministry claims it targeted and destroyed clusters of Russian forces. Our reporters are live across Ukraine and the region, as only CNN can do. We start with CNN's Sam Kiley, who is in the central Ukrainian city of Uman. And Sam, Russian negotiators say uh, that they may allow a temporary ceasefire in order to allow civilians to leave Ukraine. Uh, yeah, it's less of a ceasefire, I think, Jake, and more of the establishment of routes, safe routes. They have uh, the only breakthrough that uh, the Ukrainians have acknowledged is that the safe routes out of Kiev, out of Kharkiv, critically, critically perhaps even out of Mariupol, 
uh, are being uh, allowed or at least have been verbally agreed to, how that translates into safety for civilians who need to flee, particularly in the east. You've seen those devastating images uh, out of northern Kharkiv, but, uh, sorry, out of northern Kyiv. But Kharkiv has now uh, endured wave after wave after wave of aerial bombardment of multiple rocket launcher systems uh, attacking civilian areas. Mariupol uh, in the far south has been encircled. The mayor there has told CNN there's no food, no water, no electricity for his substantial population. You've got the city of Kherson, where uh, the mayor has said that the Russians have taken over, but uh, young men are being uh, randomly arrested. People can't walk in groups of more than two people. Uh, very heavy pressure being put on these cities, a deep need to get people to safety and some hope that they might be able to do so down these so-called humanitarian corridors. But there's no real indication as to how that is going to work and how that is going to be organised, whether or not it would be set up, for example, by the Red Cross, all these, these uh, so-called modalities, Jake, to be worked out. But coming at a very, very dangerous time when the Russians are clearly increasing the pressure on the civilian population, possibly because they've been held up in terms of the speed of their military advance, Jake. Dimitrova. Sam, Vladimir Putin has ludicrously claimed to justify his barbarism that he's trying to, quote, denazify Ukraine, a country that has a democratically elected Jewish president. Uh, the Russians have bombed the Holocaust Memorial in Ukraine. You met with some of Ukraine's Jews in what I'm told is one of the most holy sites in Hasidic Judaism. What did they have to tell you? Well, I'm here in Uman, a, a site, a city that uh, has been enjoying a huge number of uh, Hasidic pilgrims uh, every year, particularly for Jewish New Year, uh, because this is the burial site of Rabbi Nachman of Bezlov 200 and something years ago. He was interred here at the age of 38. He is a magnet for the Hasidic Jews who've been welcomed here uh, in the local synagogue, though. And this is what is really striking, Jake. They almost laugh at the idea that uh, Vladimir Putin is sending his troops to kill and die in Ukraine in the name of denazifying a country that is now extremely benign, uh, possibly the most benign regime that there's been uh, in many hundreds of years uh, towards Jews. They're welcome here. The synagogue here, uh, they say, is the biggest in Europe. And its basement, which is normally used for the ritual bathing, uh, the mikveh is now being used as a bunker for Jew and Gentile alike. And indeed, the, the hotel that I'm staying in normally houses pilgrims. Uh, it's now a location where people are fleeing uh, from Kharkiv or further east, uh, are traveling through in the Jewish community, such as it is that is left here, is also uh, doing what they can to feed people uh, as they move through, particularly trying to look out for uh, those who've been left behind, people who've kind of lost contact with friends and relatives, trying to get them back, put, put back together and sent on their way. And inside the synagogue, uh, the worshippers who remained insist that they are very much in support of Ukraine uh, and very highly contemptuous of this idea that the country's being invaded in the name of denazification, Jake. Yeah, indeed. Uh, mikvah turned into a bomb shelter, denazification. Sam Kiley in Uman, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Stay safe, please. We've seen the, the heartbreaking images of mothers and their young children desperately trying to escape Ukraine. For some families, that's simply not an option. CNN's Clarissa Ward visited Ukraine's largest children's hospital, where doctors have moved their sickest patients underground and promised not to leave their sides no matter how bad the Russian punishment of that innocent country gets. 
Outside the Ahmadid hospital, the sound of heavy fighting pierces the night air. The shelling has started, this nurse says. We're in the surgical department for newborn babies. It's so loud. Exhausted staff hover nervously in the hallway. This is Ukraine's largest children's hospital. Shutting down is not an option. Yes, we decided to open your surgical department here. Neurosurgeon Dmitro Ishenko shows us the impact of just one week of war. So the children who are too sick to be moved have to stay here in the basement in case the bombardment starts again. There are 10 patients currently being treated in this underground hallway, and they are very sick indeed. Is this your daughter? On the floor in one corner, we meet Sonia and her three-month-old daughter, Milena. Milena has a brain tumor. It's a terrifying situation. We must stay underground and we don't know how long for, she says. I'm alone here at the hospital and my husband is at home with my other kid. For seven nights, she has been sleeping on this floor as the bombing gets closer. She's saying that the stress of the situation has meant that her milk is dried up, so she's now using formula for her daughter. With resources being diverted to deal with trauma injuries, parents are stepping in to help where they can. At one bed, Valentin is feeding an unconscious child. So he's saying that little baby there is his little boy, but he's helping with this child because their mother can't be here. I tell him he's strong. There's no other way, he says. God gives us strength. In this environment, Dr. Ishenko offers his patients and their families whatever he can, but there are limits. It's really very challenging and really tough because we don't have good conditions for our patients. Is this dangerous for them, this situation? Uh, yes, and not only because we have a war. These conditions is not suitable uh, with brain surgeries. For now, non-essential procedures are on hold. 11-year-old Yaroslav's sutures should have been removed, but the risk of infection is too high. His mother, Ludmilla, tries to comfort him. I will massage you and everything will be okay, she says. But no one knows how long this war will last. And these children cannot wait forever. Jake, tonight we're continuing to hear the crackle of gunfire, the sound of explosions here in the capital as the fighting gets ever closer. Now, the Ukrainians did meet with a Russian delegation today in Belarus. We don't know much about the details of that conversation, but one thing that they did seem to agree upon, or at least start to drop the parameters of some kind of an agreement for, was the establishment of humanitarian corridors in some of these cities that are getting hit so hard. That, of course, absolutely essential, not just for children like the one you just saw uh, in our story, but for, for children and civilians all over this country who are being bombarded day in and day out, and it's only getting worse, Jake. 
Clarissa, what can you tell us about the fighting happening in the north of, you, uh, of where you are? Ukrainian authorities say a, a number of civilians have been killed in the last day. It's, it's horrifying, Jake. Honestly, every day we're combing through this social media video and CNN working hard to try to geolocate it. And today, there was just a deluge of, of, of terrifying images coming in, particularly from the town of Cherniv, which you mentioned earlier on in the show. Uh, they're now saying, Ukrainian authorities, that 33 people were killed there today. And if you look at the video that is coming out, I mean, they're truly, uh, you know, apocalyptic type of scenes. Apartment building completely destroyed. Hard to imagine how anyone uh, could have survived that. There's also, and, and Chernihiv is about 100 kilometers, so 70 miles or so north of here in Kiev, but we're also seeing terrible fighting much closer to the capital, uh, the town of Borodyanko. Uh, to the northeast uh, here, uh, or the northwest, sorry, excuse me, 30 miles northwest of here, has also seen horrendous airstrikes, artillery, um, and also in the center of the country. That, uh, if you recall, we talked yesterday about this nuclear power plant and those incredibly brave people who were standing out in front of it and refusing to allow the Russians access to it. They had brought in garbage trucks to try to prevent tanks from moving on to the plant. We don't know any longer who was in control of the plant, but the situation there today got very out of control, continuous shelling, thick black smoke. Uh, and honestly, Jake, just no end in sight. It keeps getting worse every day. All right, Clarissa Ward live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss Ukrainian journalist Anatoly Shara. He's sheltering in Kiev right now. He's in the dark for his safety. Anatoly, I, I want to ask you about your efforts to, to cover this war as a journalist in a second. But first, how are you doing? How is your family doing? Uh, it's very hard to uh, hello uh, because uh, you can hear constant constant airstrikes in Kyiv. Uh, Russians are using uh, airplanes and uh, ballistic rockets to reach Kyiv center and because they are losing the initiative in uh, battlefields, that's why they are trying to intimidate Ukrainians who who are living in Kyiv this time. So it's it's quite complicated times. U.S. intelligence suggests that, that the Russian military is, intends to surround and attempt to capture Kyiv. Why is it so important for you to stay in Kyiv? Uh, for me personally, I, uh, oh, I, I had a chance to leave it, but I want to stay because it's my city. And, uh, and I want the world to know how uh, Russians are committed war crimes because uh, they are using uh, ballistic rockets against the residential areas, the areas where people are living. They are not waging the war against Ukrainian military. They are waging the war against Ukrainian civilians. And uh, they are war criminals and the, world know, and the world must know about this. That's why I'm staying to tell you the truth, what is going on here on the ground. I, I want to show our, our viewers uh, one of the videos that you sent us. You, you went over to the Kiev TV tower after it had been targeted by Russian strikes. Tell us about uh, what you've seen happening in these last few days. Uh, sir, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's like a never-ending story because all, all, all of this is uh, happening at the same time. We, you heard the sound of the siren. It means that uh, you are under great danger of uh, airstrike 
because the Russian uh, airplanes are attacking Kyiv or they are shelling Kyiv with uh, uh, with ballistic rockets. You can you can see just you can hear just uh, the sound, and uh, you have only five five ten seconds to hide, and uh, this is uh, a, a repeated moment. So uh, we are living just from curfew time to curfew time, and under constant shelling in Kyiv. This is not a new topic for you to be covering. Obviously, the, the Russians uh, invaded and annexed Crimea in 2014. Uh, and, and you visited the front lines uh, in Donbass uh, in 2016. That's where the Ukrainian military has been fighting uh, Russian-backed separatists. Um, what is it like to watch cities across your country fall to the Russian military? Is it, uh, yes, you are right. You are quite. Uh, you are quite right, sir. I have a, a experience by visiting Donbass fightings, but I have never experienced the uh, airplane bombing, and I have never experienced such a uh, big numbers of uh, casualties. Because, uh, of course, I I have seen some battlefields, some battles, but I have never seen so much, so a great number of burned down tanks, APCs corpses all around of Ukrainian cities and villages like it is on the outskirts of Kyiv. And Russians, they don't want to take their guys. There are a lot of injured just dying on the roads uh, and they are just bombed because our military are using, uh, are trying to do their best to defend their country. But nobody, I ask Ukrainian military, uh, did someone just try to get out some corpses of Russian soldiers? The injured guys, uh, or maybe they contacted to take their prisoners. Nobody. Russia just don't give a damn. I'm sorry for this word about about her boys. It's, it's just uh, you know I don't know how to to describe it. They are these guys are like you know like cannon meat. That's that that what is also a terrifying fact. Anatoly Shara, thank you so much for what you're doing on the ground. It's so important. Thank you. So much for your time today. Stay Thank in touch you, with our show and please, please stay safe. A humanitarian crisis unfolding before the world's eyes. Now more than one million people are escaping from Ukraine. Many of them are children traveling all alone. Plus, becoming more and more isolated, getting around or out of Russia just got more difficult. Now there's no way to make flight reservations on Russia's state airlines. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead and a staggering, tragic new milestone. At least one million refugees have left Ukraine. One million. Just in the last week since the Russian invasion of Ukraine officially began. That's according to the United Nations. CNN Sarah Seidner reports from the Polish-Ukrainian border now for us, where police officials say that heartbreakingly a big number of those escaping Ukraine are unaccompanied children. A Ukrainian family's mad rush to safety, parents' desperate attempt to shield their two children from the terror only war can bring. The family lives just outside of Kyiv. The explosions rattled their bones. We fell to the ground. We were shielding our children with our bodies. We got so scared. This is beyond words. We ran. We just ran. But the adults will shed no tears here. They have made a pact. Smile and pretend everything is okay, even when they had to take the children to a shelter as bombs exploded. How are you still smiling? 
Why am I still smiling? Because it helps us stay alive. My youngest daughter was crying all night long and she asked me, why are you laughing, mom? Why are you joking? And I told her, it keeps us alive and keeps us mentally strong. We saw that strength on display by hundreds of mothers traveling alone with their children across the border into Poland. Their husbands left behind to fight. But not everyone at the Medica border crossing is coming into Poland. We witness men going the other way to join the fight in Ukraine. I'm Ukrainian, going to fight against Russians. They shall not pass. But for a million other Ukrainians, fleeing is the best option to save themselves and their children. For this family, the husband, though, remains with them, even though Ukraine's government has demanded men of his age must stay put. He's been allowed out. His duty is to his family, he says. He is the only breadwinner because his wife's duty is to the children who struggle with disabilities. At the train station, their youngest smiles and clutches her most prized possessions, her old fuzzy tiger and a new keepsake, a handful of gravel from her homeland. A handful of gravel that she brought from her home because she wanted to remind herself of what it feels like to be in Ukraine. I want to show you where we are now because this is where the family first showed up. The border is about 20 minutes from here. This is the main train station in Peshemeshel. Uh, there is all manner of things going on here, Jake. So many things. There is food when you first walk in. There is a free SIM card uh, when you walk in to my right. And then outside... There is a huge sign that is way at the end there, but right as you come off the platform. And that sign, Jake, says, here in Poland, you are safe. And that is a message to all of those people who are fleeing war right now in Ukraine and coming through this train station in Peshemyshel, Poland. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner with an important report from the Poland-Ukraine border. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. President Biden just announced some new sanctions on some new group, uh, on a new group of Russian elites. What else can Biden do to help Ukraine? Something that won't start World War III. We'll discuss next. And we're back with our World Lead this afternoon. President Biden announced more economic sanctions on a group of Russian elites during a meeting with his entire cabinet. Now, eight Russian oligarchs, as well as their family members and associates, will be subject to full sanctions. More than 50 other oligarchs will be subjected to a U.S. travel ban. To be clear, this is a slim list compared to the sanctions that the European Union put in place earlier this week on their list of oligarchs. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, it is the latest attempt by Biden to squeeze Russia's President Vladimir Putin as he continues to rain terror and death on the innocent civilians of Ukraine. President Biden convening his cabinet at the White House as Russia tightens its grip on Ukraine. We're going to continue to support Ukrainian people. With Russian forces gaining ground, Biden announcing the U.S. is sanctioning more Russian oligarchs, their family members, and even President Vladimir Putin's own spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. Today I'm announcing that we're adding dozens of names to the list, including one of Russia's wealthiest billionaires, and I'm uh, banning travel to America by, um, by more than 50 Russian oligarchs, their families, and their close associates. 
The State Department placing visa restrictions on 19 oligarchs and 47 of their family members and close associates as the White House hopes to squeeze Putin by squeezing his inner circle. The goal was to maximize the impact on Putin and Russia and minimize the harm on us and our allies and friends around the world. Earlier, Biden on the phone with the leaders of the so-called Quad Alliance, Australia, Japan and India, one day after India abstained from a United Nations resolution demanding Russia stop its war, as Biden is promising more assistance for Ukraine. We're going to continue to support the people with direct, direct assistance. The Biden administration also asking Congress for $10 billion in more aid for Ukraine, for more defense equipment, electrical grid protection, and help with the humanitarian crisis. Pelosi is throwing her support behind bipartisan calls to ban Russian oil imports, increasing the pressure on Biden to take action. Where do you stand? I'm, against, I'm all for that. Ban it. Ban the oil. Ban the oil come from Russia, yeah. While Biden has said the option is on the table, the White House is urging caution amid concerns of higher gas prices. Is the administration moving closer to banning Russian oil imports? I don't have any assessment of that for you. I just wanted to note the difference between them or that there are several different components of options. I guess the question is, what's the calculus in waiting if it's ultimately the step that the United States is going to take? Well, there's, an, there's a policy process that is undergone for any decision that is made. Sometimes those move rapidly, and often there are a range of factors that are discussed as those decisions are made. So, Jake, while President Biden has said that is something that is on the table, of course, Jen Psaki saying there that they are looking at ways to scale back purchases of Russian oil. They just have to balance that, she argued, with maintaining a global steady supply of oil. And I think, Jake, if you look to see if this is ultimately going to be a move that the United States the United States chooses to make after that policy process that Saki was talking about there, look for them to potentially try to do something in tandem with European allies, because basically every major step that they have taken since that Russian invasion got underway last week has been in coordination with Europe. All right, Kentley Collins at the White House, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser and CNN counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd. Susan, let me start with you. Biden has already sanctioned a number of top Russian oligarchs with close ties to Putin, along with their adult children. Um, do you expect these new sanctions on this new group of Russian multi-hundred millionaires and billionaires will make any difference in stopping Putin? Well, you know, Jake, look, it's obviously fits with the political uh, uh, temperature of the moment, if you will. There's a certain satisfaction in seeing yachts seized of, uh, you know, Russian gazillionaires who've been supporting Putin. Uh, but one of the concerns at the moment is Putin's extreme isolation. And, you know, had he pulled the oligarchs before this terrible war, it strikes me. Yes. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you, Susan. I, I can Keep hear you. going. Oh, great. I was just saying that, Jake, it seems to me that uh, the, the war would not have happened if it was up to the oligarchs in the first place. It's obviously been terrible for their business. So the concern is that this is punitive, but it doesn't necessarily change anything about what's happening right now. All right, Phil. Uh, Phil, I want you to take a listen to uh, uh, Senator Angus King, independent of Maine. He, he's a member of both the Intelligence Committee and the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. Take a listen. Vladimir Putin today is the most dangerous man in the world. He has this uh, blind ambition uh, to reunite the greater Russia. At the same time, he's sitting on one of the world's great nuclear arsenals. So 
this is something we, we, we have to cal carefully calculate, not shy away from confrontation, but to be sure that it's carefully calibrated and that uh, we're doing what's necessary. So I guess the question is, what is the maximum that the U.S. government and the European allies can do while also avoiding World War III? Boy, th this is a really fine uh, avenue to walk. Let me give you two pieces of it and then the wild card. Piece one, the Americans don't get directly involved. We can help, but we cannot participate, for example, the U.S. military and operations in Ukraine. Piece two, the other side of the lanes in the road, the rules here, if you will, would be Putin doesn't touch a NATO ally. So if you take those as the rules, you go down and, and the business I was in is being concerned about the law of unintended consequences. Let's say this goes on for a while and surreptitiously, clandestinely, via secret means, the Americans and the Europeans start sending in weapons via Poland. Okay, what do the Russians do then? Do they start sabotaging locations in Poland? There are vague rules in the road to avoid World War III. They don't do a NATO. We don't do direct involvement. But boy, boy, there's a lot in between there, Jake, that I think could go wrong in the coming months. Well, right. And Susan, I mean, Sweden wants to, hypothetically, what happens if Sweden wants to join NATO? Uh, Georgia wants to join NATO. Finland wants to join NATO. Uh, the rules, as Phil just uh, outlined, uh, I don't know that Putin's going to respect that. Uh, he doesn't want NATO uh, in Finland or, or, or Georgia. Absolutely, Jake. And in fact, that's the biggest concern that I hear from Russia experts right now is this concern that Putin thinks we're already possibly crossing his red line. Right. Uh, as Phil said, the rules of the road are not clear. And, you know, if Putin believes that NATO already is uh, essentially propping up the Ukrainian uh, military and waging this fight against him, he may already believe that he's at war with us, even if we don't believe that we're at war with him. And I think that's the, the thing that is keeping many, many people up at night who are looking closely at this, is that uh, we may already be past the point of communicating to Putin that we are not in conflict with you. Phil, uh, there is this concern that uh, Senator Ben Sass, a Republican of Nebraska, who's on the Senate Intelligence Committee, has raised, which is uh, whether or not the U.S. is sufficiently enough uh, sharing real-time actionable intelligence with Ukraine. Now, Jen Psaki at the White House uh, says that the U.S. has been sharing intelligence uh, in a timely manner. Um, what could uh, one of the holdups be? The, the White House insists their lawyers are not stopping anything. What, what do you think might be going on? Sources and methods. That is, someone says we're intercepting Russian military communications. They're too sensitive to pass quickly to Ukraine. We have to have a delay process to ensure that there's a term we use in intelligence, that we mask that in intelligence we're collecting. I, I would be surprised to see that's happening. This is a presidential decision. The president looks at the intel players and says, as George Tenet, the CIA director, told me, when there's intelligence for an ally, you pass it and you pass it immediately. There are ways to do this. We could talk about, Jake. There are ways to mask that intelligence so the Ukrainians don't know how we gathered it. But I would be really shocked to learn that there's a delay in passing information about one of the biggest military conflicts we've seen since World War II. Phil Mudd, Susan Glasser, thanks to both of you. Okay. Appreciate it. A big reveal by the January 6th committee, which could spell, theoretically, big legal trouble for Donald Trump. That's next.
In our politics lead, the first signs of a possible, possible criminal case against former President Donald Trump in a new court filing. The January 6th House Committee alleges that the former president was part of a criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now live from the Capitol Hill. Uh, Ryan, this is not a formal criminal indictment. The House Committee does not have that power. So walk us through what this might mean. Yeah, that's right, Jake. It's not even a referral by the House Committee to the Department of Justice uh, to investigate a crime. Instead, what this is designed to do is prevent John Eastman, a conservative lawyer, from uh, invoking attorney-client privilege when it comes to keeping a tranche of emails secret from the January 6th Select Committee. But in order to get past that attorney-client privilege, what the committee is alleging is that they have discovered evidence that leads them to believe that Eastman was involved in a criminal conspiracy that involved the former president Donald Trump. This is what part of their legal brief read last night. It says, quote, evidence and information available to the committee establishes a good faith belief that Mr. Trump and others may have engaged in criminal and or fraudulent acts and that the plaintiff's legal assistance was used in the furtherance of those activities. And uh, the committee laid out a pretty compelling case in this lengthy brief. It was more than 200 pages. It included uh, transcripts of depositions, uh, information that we were seeing for the very first time. And while you're right to point out, Jake, this is not a criminal referral, it certainly gives us a glimpse into the direction, the investigation uh, that the committee is headed and that it could ultimately end up in that place. But committee members were quick to tell us today they aren't there yet and that it's ultimately the the responsibility of the Department of Justice to investigate a crime if they believe one exists. And Ryan, you've also just learned about a new subpoena from the January 6th committee. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, the uh, a former member of the Trump campaign. She's, of course, the fiance uh, of Donald Trump Jr. And she was someone that was actively involved in raising money uh, for the groups that held rallies in and around Washington, D.C. Uh, in the days leading up to and on January 6th. Uh, Guilfoyle uh, met with the committee last week. She actually came forward voluntarily, but she abruptly ended her meeting with the committee because she was upset that there were members of the committee participating in the event and she accused the committee of leaking the news of this event to the news media. It's something the committee denies. They also say that they never agreed to not have committee members as part of the deposition. It's something they do in almost every one of these cases. They promised last week that they were going to compel her testimony through a subpoena. They're making good on that subpoena today, issuing it to Guilfoyle, uh, telling her that she now is being forced to come before the committee uh, and provide information and an interview uh, as part of their investigation. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. No reservations and growing more isolated. Why Putin's war is making it, making it impossible for Russia's airline to fly. In our world lead, an important and potentially crippling development, connecting Russians to the rest of the world as big corporations continue to cut their ties with Russia over its brutal war against Ukraine. Russia's main airline, Aeroflot, has now been cut off from the global system used for airline reservations. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montine is here. Pete, it, it, it's hard to run an airline when you have no spare parts coming in, no airspace to fly through, and now, of course, uh, a limited ability to uh, allow people to reserve seats. This seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, this is what crippling Russia's economy looks like, Jake, a place where air travel 
is so critical. Think about this. Russia about twice the size of the continental U.S. in terms of area. So this move is going to have a big impact on just getting around. Aeroflot is Russia's largest airline. It corners the market, and it now effectively cannot sell tickets. Aeroflot has its agreements ended by a company called Sabre. That is the reservation system you've probably used but just don't realize it. Sabre runs the back end of bookings on sites like Google Flights, Expedia, Travelocity. It also operates behind the scenes at airlines, travel agencies, and even some major corporations. Industry experts had been wondering when this would happen exactly. They know that if you want to bring an airline to its knees, go for the reservation system. In fact, we saw that here in the U.S. during a big Sabre outage last spring. Sabre's CEO says it has been monitoring the evolving situation in Ukraine with increasing concern, and we are taking a stand against this military conflict. Just one more way that Russia is becoming more isolated from the rest of the world. First, the U.K., Canada, and the EU closed their airspace to Russian flights. Boeing and Airbus said they would stop doing business with Russians. And just last night, the U.S. officially closed its airspace to Russian flights. One industry analyst tells us that the measures the aviation world is taking on its own could be just as powerful as any sanction taken by any government. Jake. All right, Pete Montine, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. The southern part of Ukraine under siege. Russia taking out one city's electricity and its water. But Ukrainians are refusing to give up. We're going to talk to one grandmother who's knitting camouflage netting. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a dark and twisted mindset demonstrated by Vladimir Putin today, who signaled he's nowhere near ending Russia's brutal and unprovoked war against the people of Ukraine, with an estimated thousands of Ukrainian civilians already killed in just a week. Putin on Russian state TV today praised their killers, Russian soldiers. Putin bragged that this murderous operation is going according to plan, and Putin said, quote, I will never give up my belief that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. That came after Putin's 90-minute call with French President Emmanuel Macron. The French warned after that call, quote, the worst is yet to come. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration is weighing its next move. Just hours ago, President Biden met with his cabinet, saying severe economic sanctions are choking off Putin's access to technology and the global financial system. Biden added that world leaders are trying to come up with ways to maximize the impact on Russia and minimize the impact on the United States and economies of the allies. A senior U.S. defense official tells CNN that Russia has now moved 90 percent of its pre-staged combat power into Ukraine. Russian forces have made major territorial gains in the central and southern parts of the country, many urban areas included. But as CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now, The Ukrainian people are not giving up without a fight. The town of Kherson refuses to give up, it seems. Looting, crippling life here. This Russian soldier's bid to get into a cell phone store, a sign of the lawless world they brought with them where food and medicine is lacking. And what life is left made more unbearable by the laying of tripwire mines, local officials said. This one posted online to warn others. 
On the other side of Russian-held Crimea, Mariupol, under siege, without water or electricity, the mayor saying the Russian, quote, scum have found no other way to break us. The prize in the south is this, Odessa, its opera house fortified, its coastline a harder task. Where the tide could bring Russians in with it, yet still laps as if nothing has changed. An Estonian ship sank Thursday east of here, its crew rescued, with Ukrainian officials accusing Russia of shelling it to act as cover for their landing ships. Any hour now, when the landing force could hove irrevocably into view. Odessa brims with locals ready though. Like so many here, these civilian defenders don't want their whereabouts filmed, but are happy to speak. Uh, the war started, so it's on back home. Zhenya uh... is chief marketing officer for an IT company who's travelled Europe and Africa, but joined up to fight on day one. Unfortunately, I have lost two of my friends uh, in Kherson two days ago. They I'm had sorry. They, uh, yeah. They also have been were in... Were they fighting in Kherson? No? Yeah, they were fighting, and they, they, they were in, as, as in volunteer... A troop, so they have no military background at all. Both of them are uh, programmers. We're joined by Lera, aged 19, a nanny who fled Russians in Crimea when she was 11. We're ready to the end to defend our land, she said. The occupiers came to my home before. My family is still there. Only I could leave because I don't want to live in Russia. Across town, mothers knit camouflage netting, while, like Nelia, their daughters fight, hers staying behind to defend Kiev. We, we know the um, danger, we know that it will come, but we didn't know when will it come. And uh, uh, I asked them, uh, children, come here, please, be safe, come to me. But they didn't want, no, mom, please stay alive, stay safe, but we will defend our, because everybody loves our, uh, our motherland, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Everybody wants to be independent, to be free. They decided to stay there, and I can't influence their decision. But I pray every day, I pray every night for them to stay alive. The defiant words of the Ukrainian soldiers of Snake Island, who told a Russian ship where to shove it, echo here. Uh, Russian ship. It's, it's the logo. It's the logo now in Ukraine. They'll need more than high spirits in the days ahead. As the nights go by here, we just constantly hear of shelling on the outskirts of this town. It has been quiet tonight so far, Jake. Sirens last night, uh, but still a persistent fear that we are slowly seeing Russian forces moving in towards this prized port city, Jake. Uh, and Nick, uh, there's a mayor in central Ukraine. You're in south, southern Ukraine. There's one in central Ukraine who says he's seeing more shelling there tonight. He also said an enemy convoy is headed for a nuclear power plant in his town. Ha has Infrastructure such as this become an increasing target of the Russian forces? 
This is what you essentially have to ask, Jake. What is the goal of this Russian military operation if it is not just essentially destroying whatever it can? Enerodar in the centre of the country, a scene of serious protest amongst locals who were simply getting in the way of military convoys moving in towards its centre. Why is it important? Well, it contains probably the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. And it's currently under threat. There are deep concerns that Russian convoy is moving towards that particular plant. And we've seen their, I wouldn't say wanton appetite, but their utter disregard for leaving infrastructure remotely intact, often targeting it specifically against uh, the claims of Russian officials that is not something that they would do. And so I think when we start seeing uh, Russian forces having moved near the former places of Chernobyl in the past and now seeing them moving around Enerhodar and hearing the comments of Russian President Vladimir Putin, there are deep concerns here that we are seeing um, a force that has absolutely no interest in ensuring it doesn't cause the most amount of destruction possible, Jake. Nick, Ukrainians uh, continue to fight against the Russian troops. You're a longtime war correspondent. From your perspective, how long can the Ukrainians keep it up? Are they going to have the resources as long as they need them? Um, This is the most awful part of all of this, Jake, is that, you know, we're seeing just the beginning here, the first week. You heard in that report there, someone whose two friends died just in this week. Do they have the resources? Probably not. Do they have the will? Yes. Does that will mean that we're looking at possibly weeks here of slow, ghastly, ugly attrition against Russian forces? Yes. Have we seen the Russian military's capacity for extraordinary brutality, a lack of discipline, a lack of focus? Uh, Yes, we've seen that in the past too. It ends badly for the Russian military. We've seen that. It will certainly, if it continues in this potentially lengthy war of attrition it will end badly for ukraine as well you just have to ask what has actually come of the russian government's apparent goal in their mind of some sort of demilitarization they call it denazification preposterous as it is what do they want left of ukraine if they intend to try and rule over it that's what we can't really see as this destruction unfolds jake Nick Payton Walsh, thank you. Please stay safe. The world has watched Putin use this exact same playbook before. In 2014, Putin lied about Russian soldiers. They were actually in Crimea, even though he denied that they were. And then they later seized the Ukrainian peninsula. Just a matter of weeks. But it was six years earlier when the world's attention was on the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, when Putin targeted the former Soviet Republic of Georgia invading the country in a five-day conflict, killing more than 400 people, and installing pro-Russian leaders in two former provinces of Georgia, now breakaway republics. My next guest was a political leader as that 2008 invasion played out. I want to bring in right now the the president of the country of Georgia, Salome uh, Zorbichvili. Madam President, thank you so much for joining us. You've said Vladimir Putin is waging an all-out war on Ukraine. Do you think in this war he's trying to annex the entire country or is he just going to take select regions what what do you what do you guess uh well it doesn't look anymore that he's uh, just aiming at annexing a few regions uh it now looks that uh, he's uh, destroying the whole country uh it's a war of mass destruction in a way and when he says i heard uh, his declarations today that all of that is uh, moving according to plans. 
uh, I'm not so sure that it's uh, according to plans. It looks like uh, uh, he uh, hoped or he thought that it was going to be much easier uh, to uh, obtain uh, the result of redition that uh, he probably expected uh, from this government. He was not planning uh, on the way Ukraine is uh, resisting. Uh, he had a mass assault that was very psych psychological also with these uh, forces that were used from all sides, and it has not worked. Of course, militarily, uh, he has a superiority which uh, one day or the other will manifest itself, but the determination and the resistance of the Ukrainian people and leadership uh, is really very admirable. Putin's invasion uh, of Georgia lasted five days. That was just obviously to get those two breakaway republics. His annexation of Crimea in 2014 took about a month. But this is a much larger seizure. Ukraine is about the size of, of Texas. How do you think this is going to end? A full Russian occupation of all of Ukraine in perpetuity? Uh, a puppet government? What, what do you think the strategy is here for Putin? Well, that's what I was saying, that I think that uh, his strategy has not worked as he thought. Now, what is the new strategy? Uh, what is the new plan that he uh, has? It looks more like uh, trying to occupy the whole of Ukraine, taking the cities at whatever cost, even civilians. Uh, one thing is clear, though. Uh, his pretension that this was one nation and one people, and that he reiterated today, uh, will never be true again. This never will be one people after the destruction, including in the regions, Russian speaking, that uh, he considered as being so close as to be brothers. The way he's been treating these cities, these people, uh, the civilians, the children, uh, means that uh, he has created really uh, not one people, but people that uh, will be his enemies. If Putin does ultimately succeed in conquering Ukraine, are you worried that he's going to turn his attention to other former Soviet states, such as, for example, Georgia? Well, uh, his attention, as you mentioned, uh, uh, was already turned uh, once to Georgia. Uh, and Russian attention to Georgia is something that uh, historically has been quite often turned to Georgia. Uh, so, of course, uh, we are always attentive, uh, always worried, because we have an occupation line. We have two regions, 20% uh, of Georgia's territory that is occupied, uh, with a huge uh, military bases on, in those two regions uh, that could uh, at any time move. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Georgia uh, has changed uh, his, uh, its path towards uh, European, Euro-Atlantic integration. And in fact, uh, today uh, we have entered uh, our plea for membership the same way as Moldova and uh, yesterday Ukraine. And that means that those uh, three countries, the trio of uh, EU associated members uh, is moving down the same path. So yes, you can try to frighten the countries. That doesn't mean that you change their orientation that you change their determination to keep their independence and independence sovereignty means that you choose your allies, uh, you, you choose the organizations in which you want to integrate.
What do you make of the conversations that we've heard from, for instance, it's been reported in European newspapers that French President Emmanuel Macron says that this is not the same Putin that he met with in 2019, that the isolation of the last two plus years because of COVID uh, has really made him far more erratic. And we've saw some very emotional outbursts by him uh, that were uncharacteristic. Do you think that something is going on with him emotionally or mentally? Well, it must be uh, probably very isolating uh, to be in the position he is with uh, nobody that probably can uh, diverge from his views or make any other opinion. Uh, now he's isolated of uh, almost the whole world. He has some uh, countries that do not oppose him, but they're not uh, very much in line uh, with uh, his actions in Ukraine. So he's very alone. How that does affect his psychology, that I wouldn't know how to say. You know, we do not have diplomatic relations uh, with uh, Russia. I do not have meetings with uh, Putin, so I do not know him uh, from close. And uh, I wouldn't say how that affects him, but he looks and uh, sounds very isolated and more and more uh, aggressive even in his uh, speeches. Uh, the president of Georgia, Salome Zorovichvili, thank you so much for talking us today. Uh, please come by anytime. I this wanted is obviously to add, an important. I wanted to Go add ahead. just one thing that I talked just uh, today uh, to Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken, uh, and he has uh, reiterated the support of the United States to Georgia's sovereignty and integrity. And at this time, it's a very important thing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Madam President. It's good to see you. Thank you again. Coming up next, this Russian woman may be tiny and getting a little long in the tooth, but she's not afraid of Vladimir Putin. She's willing to be arrested by Russian police for speaking out against the invasion and brutality against Ukraine. Then trying to punish Russia by going after the oligarchs of various toys, Russians mega yachts featuring pools and helicopter landing pads and crews of almost 100 people are being seized around the world. Stay with us. In our world, the war is going according to plan, according to Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's how he's characterizing the status of his violent, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine as his military shells residential buildings. And as U.S. officials predict, Russian forces will increasingly hit more and more civilian targets with an estimated thousands of Ukrainian civilians already killed in just a week. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live from Moscow. Nick, Putin's statement today was broadcast on state television. Do we have any sense of how the Russian people are reacting? Yeah, I'd say it's a split between old and young. Uh, I mean, Putin liked to use state TV. He's kind of old school because he's thinking like it's the 90s even or the noughties where everyone's still watching state TV. Well, they're not. Uh, the older generation like him, the ones who grew up in the Soviet Union like him, 
they are watching it and they are hearing his message and they're believing it. They believe that the country was forced to go to war. In fact, they think that they're not starting a war. They think they're ending a war that Ukraine that Ukraine started. They think Ukraine is backed by NATO and NATO put Ukraine up to this. So on the streets today, I found people literally literally tell you exactly what they're hearing on TV. They say, we're not starting a war, we're stopping a war. You know, that's what the anchors on TV here say. So when Putin goes on TV, yes, there's a lot of the older generation that hear him. But there's a lot of a younger generation that are getting their information by social media. They're getting their information from talking to their buddies who live all over Europe and are seeing what we're seeing about happening in Ukraine. And they know and they say that their leadership is lying to them, that they don't trust their leadership uh, and they don't know what to do about it. Uh, They're frustrated by it. But you know, they feel captive in the country. They love the country. They don't love the leadership. What are they going to do? And you get that sense of frustration when you talk to them, Jake. Vladimir Putin spoke uh, earlier today with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, The Russian government is engaging in direct talks, diplomatic talks with Ukraine. What do we know about those discussions? They didn't really go anywhere, but the Russians are saying uh, we've agreed to open up humanitarian corridors and have ceasefire around certain towns. That sounds exactly like the Russian playbook from Syria, for example. What did they do? They gave certain towns ceasefires, humanitarian corridors. What do they actually do? Well, listen to the mayors in Ukraine today. They're cutting off gas, cutting off electricity, cutting off heating, cutting off water, cutting off food. Um, humanitarian corridors so civilians can get, can get out. That's what Putin wants. He wants the civilians to get out of the way. And uh, that's how he's trying to fight this fight. Uh, it, it, it's the idea that these are humanitarian corridors in the sense that you and I understand, that's not what they're there for. They're there to clear the populations out and make the fight easier uh, for his soldiers. All right, Nick Robertson in Moscow, thank you so much. So what is Vladimir Putin's end game? Does he have one? One of the world's foremost experts on Russia and Putin joins us with her ominous take on what the Russian leader may do next. Stay with us. In our world lead, there is growing concern around the world that Russia's military invasion of Ukraine could result in a direct military conflict with the West. Amid these worries, the U.S. and Russia have established a communication hotline to try to avoid any possible miscalculations or misunderstandings. That's according to senior Pentagon officials. Let's discuss this and, and much more with Fiona Hill, the former national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Security Council and author of the book, There is nothing for you here, finding opportunity in the 21st century. Uh, Fiona Hill, thank you so much. It's great to to have you on the show. Today, Putin claimed that his war against Ukraine, that the U.S. says is intentionally targeting civilians, is, quote, going according to plan. Is it? Well, I don't think it is, but um, Putin has to say that because the statements that he's making right now are for an internal audience inside of Russia. It's the elite, it's the people around him and the military commands, and it's also for the Russian population who have also been told that this is, in fact, not an invasion uh, or a full-scale military operation, but a technical military operation. In other words, that this is um, uh, somehow incisive, it's contained, that it's being done to minimise casualties in Ukraine, and obviously to also minimise the losses of Russian servicemen. Now, on the outside, we're seeing something very different that is looking like it's verging on carnage and on a Russia that is prepared under Putin's direction 
uh, to basically level Ukrainian cities. But those are not the images that are getting back into the Russian public. You, you've studied Putin and Russia for a long time. How do you see this ending? Will the sanctions and strangling of the Russian economy, the isolation of the country, stop Putin? Will he try to occupy Ukraine in perpetuity? I, I know you can't predict, but I, what is his plan? Well, look, his plan was clearly that he was going to be able to take over Ukraine, uh, cause, you know, he's already laid it out, the uh, immediate surrender of the Ukrainian military and the toppling of the Ukrainian government under Volodymyr Zelensky. And presumably he was already priming a candidate for um, you know, new elections in Ukraine that would have been orchestrated by Russia and then bringing uh, Ukraine firmly back into Russia's orbit, potentially also the annexation of additional amounts of uh, Ukrainian territory. Now, the end game is going to be you know, quite different. Even if they do um, manage to extend control over Ukrainian cities in the south or take Kiev, they're going to be facing an enormous amount of resistance. And this is going to go from uh, really a, a contained and highly directed and controlled military operation into something that is far much worse that's going to drag on. And so then in terms of the end game, I think what we're going to be able, uh, uh, well, what we're going to have to see here is a sustained international response. I can't say how this is going to end because Vladimir Putin has made it clear that he wants to sue for surrender on our part, that he's not looking right now for some kind of off-ramp. And we're going to have a really hard time making it clear to him and the people around him that they've made a mistake. So it's not just on the battlefield in Ukraine where this is going, war is going to be lost for Vladimir Putin. It's not just going to be in the world of public opinion. It's going to be whether the pressure mounts and efforts are made to engage with Putin and the people around him directly from many other countries, uh, a global response, not just a response from Europe or President Macron or President Biden, for example. It's only then that we might be able to see some recalculation on Russia's part. And the difficulty will be about whether we can find some way in which he doesn't lose face over this. Because if he sees he's painted himself into a corner, then we've already got a pretty good idea of where he's contemplating of getting himself out of it. Even as Putin was touting the success of his brutal invasion, um, diplomats representing Ukraine and Russia were engaged in a second round of talks uh, during which the Kremlin said that they reached an agreement on providing humanitarian corridors for Ukrainian civilians to flee and on a possible temporary ceasefire in, in some of the areas where evacuations are happening. That doesn't sound like any progress in terms of getting the Russians to end their war. It suggests, in fact, the opposite, like it's going to continue. Um, what's your reaction? I agree, Jake. I think that's exactly what we're going to see. And in fact, what Putin may do is use these pauses, as it were, uh, to basically recalculate, recalibrate and reposition. Uh, he's still got um, an awful lot of force that he can deploy. And uh, we're seeing even more of the intimidation tactics, uh, the ruthless uh, shelling of civilian targets. He still wants to have Ukrainians surrender. And perhaps, you know, he's also hoping that these mass refugee uh, exodus will put pressure on uh, the governments um, and the populations around Ukraine in uh, countries like Poland and Romania, uh, for example, and that there will be more pressure on our governments as well then as a result uh, to find a way out of this on his terms. 
So I don't think by any stretch that we're seeing any progress here at this particular juncture, though we've got to um, keep working on these humanitarian corridors and keep talking about a way to find a ceasefire and end of these hostilities. Fiona Hill, uh, we've been trying to book you for years. Uh, please come back. Uh, we're, we're big admirers of yours. Uh, and the book, again, is called There Is Nothing For You Here. It is available now. Fiona Hill, a pleasure. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, relief from the sometimes deadly impact of these toxic pits, burn pits, which have left many of our nation's heroes suffering and desperate for help. Stay with us. In our buried lead, buried lead is, that's what we call stories we feel are not getting enough attention. New hope today, new hope for veterans exposed to burn pits. Today, the House of Representatives passed legislation that would expand healthcare eligibility for service members who were exposed to these toxins during war. Throughout the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, burn pits were used 24-7 to incinerate all sorts of waste, food, old uniforms, medical waste, military equipment, jet fuel, medical waste, even human feces. This exposure left many veterans with long-lasting side effects, the worst of which is cancer. Here to discuss is Isaiah James. He's an Army veteran who served twice in Iraq, once in Afghanistan, and is now a senior policy advisor for the Black Veterans Project. Isaiah, you've been advocating for veterans exposed to burn pits for years with the organization Burn Pits 360. You yourself have been dealing with long-lasting effects. Explain to our audience what that's like and what you're experiencing now. Uh, what it's like, first of all, Jake, thank you for having me back on and for covering this very important issue. Um, to sum it up, you know, it's it's like having a weight on your chest every time you take a step. For me, I had really bad, I have really bad lung scarring, and I'm on oxygen therapy every day of my life. You just don't see it because my machine is is in my bedroom. It's 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 almost the invisible wound that nobody sees because we look like young, healthy people coming back from these wars and campaigns overseas, but we're dealing with these, these very big traumas that are still going on inside our body every day. The bill, the legislation the House passed today could provide coverage for up to 3.5 million veterans. What's your reaction to today's vote? It's a step in the right direction. It truly, truly is because this issue has been, you know, fallen by the wayside for so many years. It's saddened to see that over 170 Republicans played partisan politics and voted no against the bill that is helping the war fighters. And quite frankly, Jake, they should be ashamed of themselves to ever say they support the military and veterans. It's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. We still need to get all those presumptives in there. And I know this bill would expand care for some three and a half million veterans, but now we need to, after this bill, is, is we fight over it, we need to expand healthcare for all veterans who serve you know, in the military regardless of which area you serve in, because we still have Vietnam vets who are still fighting to get, you know, the benefits. And they were exposed to Agent Orange, you know, 60, 60 years ago. So it's, it's a long, hard fight slog, but I am thankful that we're taking a step in the right direction. It's a long, bipartisan uh, history in this country of screwing over our veterans after a- asking them to fight uh, for us. Um, the U.S. Senate passed its own bill um, on burn pits. It aimed at helping former service members. That, that passed in February. That bill's different from the bill that passed the House just now. They're going to need to be reconciled before something ultimately uh, lands on President Biden's resolute desk to sign. 
Are you hopeful that this process will be resolved soon and, and President Biden will be able to sign something into law? I, 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 I'm hopeful that it is, and, I, and I'm pretty sure it will be because we're going to be giving them hell. I was up on the Hill not too long ago meeting with some of these senators, and, and we were meeting with uh, Republicans. I'm not going to name which ones. And quite frankly, the main thing they talk about is money. We can't pay for this. We can't pay for that. I mean, and we're going to keep giving them help. We're going to keep bringing attention to this issue. So hopefully something does get on the president's resolute desk very, very soon because we're not going to stop. They trained us to never quit, and they're going to see how, how strong our resolve is. Now, the president has said that his son, Bo, might have developed the, the deadly brain cancer that killed him by being exposed to a burn pit while serving in Iraq. He, he was clear to note that there's no, there's no proof of that. Um, what do you make of that, and what do you make of his efforts to, to get this issue resolved? First of all, I'm sorry that he lost his son at such a young age, at the age that I am right now. And I'm glad that he it's on his radar because he it touched him so personally. There's no proof that it happened because everybody there's no studies being done. Everybody's just pushing us to the wayside. I'm glad that he's he's finally, you know, taking a, an issue with it. And he's he's putting, you know, the power of the presidency behind it. It's been too long that we've, you know, pushed this issue to the to the back. Um, I was exposed to burn pits, and I know a lot of my buddies, you know, my age who have died from cancer and, and these strange cancers that don't come from anything but exposure to these toxic chemicals. And in no other facet of life were they exposed to these toxic chemicals, save for the military service. So, again, I'm glad the president sees it. I'm sorry he lost his son. I remember when it happened in the news. And I hope, hopefully, this will light a fire under him to light a fire under Congress as we're doing so. And just so our viewers understand, it's illegal to build these burn pits in the United States. You're not allowed to do it. Uh, but yes. for some reason, uh, we do it in Iraq and Afghanistan, right near our, our service members and, and innocent civilians. Finally, I want to ask you, it was when the president brought up burn pits and helping veterans uh, that Colorado Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert uh, yelled out um, that Biden had put service members in coffins. She referenced uh, the 13 uh, service members who were killed uh, during that ugly withdrawal from Afghanistan last summer. What was your response to that moment? I'm gonna speak plainly, Jake. She's an idiot, all right? And yes, I said that. that she cannot even equate that to what we're talking about right now. Those service members who served their country honorably and died in service when you know the, what happened in Afghanistan happened, they were doing their duty. President Biden had nothing to do with that. And for her to interrupt the, the sitting commander in chief as he's talking about something so poignant and so important, just to score some cheap political points that only play on some obscure networks for right-wing trolls is inexcusable. And she should be ashamed of her goddamn self, but she's not going to be because she doesn't have any candor. Isaiah James, it's always great to see you. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your service. As always, we appreciate it. Hope to have you on again soon when this finally makes it to the president's desk. 80-foot pools and helicopter landing pads, just some of the luxuries in the newly seized yachts of Russia's rich and famous. We're going to take you inside next. Welcome to television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another dazzling lifestyles of the rich and famous. 
Those of us of a certain age all remember the lifestyles of the rich and famous theme song and host Robin Leach with his champagne wishes and caviar dreams. But this week, it's vodka wishes and borscht dreams, and they're being shattered. That's because billionaire Russian oligarchs with ties to Vladimir Putin have been slapped with sanctions, resulting in their prized and quite pricey possessions, such as multi-million dollar yachts, being taken away. CNN's Drew Griffin now with a closer look at the floating mansions caught in the middle of this pressure campaign. The 280-foot yacht Amore Vero features multiple decks, has a swimming pool that turns into a helicopter pad, and boasts of master and VIP suites to accommodate up to 14 guests. And it's just been seized by the French government. It's linked to Igor Sation, the CEO of Russian oil giant Rosneft, though the yacht company now says he doesn't own it. European Union sanctioned session earlier this week, describing him as one of Russian President Vladimir Putin's most trusted and closest advisors. The seizure, part of a coordinated action from Western countries, making it difficult for Russian billionaires to operate and putting pressure on Putin. This is what he cares about. This is what's important to him. This helps because the oligarchs look after Putin's money. We want to punish Putin personally and directly for what he's done. And this is the most direct way of doing that. Another target of coordinated sanctions, the superyacht Dilbar. It's currently being renovated in Hamburg, Germany, and owned by a telephone and mining magnet. It has dozens of cabins and a crew of 96 people. Guests can swim in an 80-foot pool, once the largest ever put on a yacht. A CNN review from marinetraffic.com found yachts have been reported to be owned by Russian oligarchs spread out across the world. Some were already on the move towards friendlier ports in anticipation of a worldwide crackdown. The problem is, is that the sanctions have been announced ahead of time. So probably right now they're all busy feverishly engineering deals in which ownership changes could be triggered the minute sanctions are handed down. So it's going to be a game of cat and mouse, unfortunately. That cat and mouse game may have already begun, even with Russian billionaires who are not under sanction. The Galactica Supernova, with floor-to-ceiling marble, an outdoor theater and a waterfall pool, reportedly owned by a Russian oil company executive, left Barcelona on Saturday and crossed the Mediterranean to Montenegro. Though the ownership is often hidden behind complicated registries and shell companies, these yachts are a symbol of the cash and prestige oligarchs have built under Putin. Luxuries like anti-missile defense systems, bomb-proof doors and a mini submarine, or a beauty salon and an elevator. One yacht now out of reach of any Western authorities, the graceful. German media has speculated the owner is none other than Vladimir Putin himself. Two weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, the yacht left Hamburg, Germany and sped to Kaliningrad, Russia, where no location data has been recorded since. Jake, U.S. government also sanctioned five ships it says are tied to a Russian bank, oil tankers, freighters. That author, Catherine Belton, has spoken to a few of these oligarchs. She says they are in shock, never thought Putin would go this far. Jake? All right, Drew Griffin, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Targets of hate. Seven Asian-American women attacked in New York City in just two hours. Seven. And police say the same man did it. Stay with us. 
In our national lead, a terrifying two hours of hate crimes in New York City. Seven women, seven women assaulted on the streets. The violent spree spread across Manhattan. All seven women assaulted were Asian American and their ages ranged from 19 to 57. Police have arrested and charged 28-year-old Stephen Zajonk with seven counts of assault as a hate crime. Sadly, this is only the latest incident, marking a disturbing trend. More than 130 anti-Asian American incidents were confirmed in just New York City in 2021, a massive jump from the 27 reported in 2020. CNN's Bryn Gingras is with us live now. Jin, uh, Bryn, rather, what did police say happened here? Yeah, I mean, Jake, this is why the Asian Hate Crimes Task Force was formed for the NYPD, right? To get all these resources to help get these arrests happening quickly. And that's what happened here. These incidents allegedly happening on Sunday, this arrest happening on Wednesday. So that is a good thing. Police are on it. But of course, we are seeing far too many of these incidents. In this particular case, what police are telling us happened is this 28-year-old man, again, now behind bars and facing a number of charges that are hate crime related, essentially went from Midtown Men Manhattan over a two-hour spree down to the lower part of Manhattan, uh, attacking women of Asian descent, aging from 19 to 57 years old. Police saying this man would go up to them, essentially punch them in the face, and would then move on, attacking another woman uh, on this track. Again, several uh, days later, he was arrested. He's facing those charges, but uh, the hate crimes unit saying that this is happening far too often, and they're continuing what they have always been doing, which is trying to close these cases, but also trying to educate the community, these communities, essentially to report these crimes. If something happens to you, make sure you report them so they can actually close these cases. Uh, but again, these crimes becoming more heinous just recently, Jake. We've seen actually a number of cases that we uh, have talked about here on your newscast where the victims have died from the incidents that are happening. And certainly the, the fear here is that more incidents are going to happen because more people are now taking the subways. More people are returning back to life here, especially in New York City. Jake. All right, Brent Jingras, thank you so much. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the TikTok. You can Tweet us at the lead CNN. Uh, you can listen to our podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.